I was up in Prescott and uh, I was on my laptop and this was early days, I don't know, like a year and a half ago or something. And I was asked to update a user. I forgot the where clause. What happens when you forget a where clause when you update a user live is that you update all your users, right? So I updated all my users uh, at that time and it was, it was thousands already by that time. And it was like, I expired them all immediately. So I would, the thing I was trying to change was an expiration date because we have like trial periods and stuff. And um, yeah, I uh, updated like 4,000 users and I was like, oh crap. My name is Jason Rydell and I'm the co-founder and CTO at Aspireship. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Jason Rydell spent his nights and weekends building the platform to change your career. All this and more on Code Story. Jason Rydell was drawn to technology as a nine-year-old. He knew what he wanted to do with his life, falling into the tech world, and as such, he didn't go to college. Music was his first love, or second, he debates which came first, though he is not a musician. He has produced music in the past, creating beats for artists. Interesting fact about Jason, he ran a hip-hop label for eight years on the side. The way he puts it, he used to make money through IT and spend money through building a hip-hop label. He's married with two kids and is into nutrition, though that tends to fall to the wayside because kids will only eat what they are going to eat. Starting as a nights and weekends side project, he and his co-founder created a way for driven individuals to transform their future through learning and opportunity. This is the creation story of Aspireship. Aspireship is a training and uh, talent development platform for the SaaS industry. The way it got started was uh, my co-founder, Corey. It's his vision and what he kind of had the idea uh, for was this platform that enabled individuals who are driven and motivated to like transform their future through, their, through learning and opportunity. And if that sounds scripted, that's because that's our mission statement. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we worked really hard on that mission statement. It really started with trying to help people get to where they want to be in their careers. It's really taken off in a, in a really great way. Go figure, since our logo is a rocket. That's really how the idea started. The product started with me and Corey having day jobs. Uh, it's probably not an uncommon story. And setting out, you know, on Starbucks mornings and random nights uh, around family time, because we both have families, to sort of like, okay, what, what does this need to be? How does it need to look? And then finally, you know, breaking ground on the product when we both quit our jobs in July of uh, 2019. I, I think June for him, July for me, it was like two weeks separation type of thing. Well, tell me about the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built, how long it took you to build, what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. The product took about three or four months to build. It was from uh, July of 2019 up till October of 2019 when we launched. And it's really interesting because um, for a couple different reasons, like number one, I am not a sort of like classically trained developer. I've always written code, but I wrote code in a DevOps space. DevOps is really my, my native genius or whatnot. 
it's where I've spent, you know, 20 years of my careers. But part of becoming a co-founder and CTO was I wanted to sort of put myself back through some schooling and do, you know, development full time for a little bit and then build a really great company and culture. Um, I, I always try to make my career decisions around that learning thing. With the MVP, I, I really didn't have the latest and greatest technology under my belt already, and I had a choice to make, right? It was either start with some things that I know already that have been around for many years, sort of proven tech, and uprev from there, or um, take the time to learn it. And I didn't have that luxury of time, as is typical in startups. Based on you know deadlines we wanted to meet, we had raised funding by the time we had quit our jobs, which put sort of a ticking clock on you. It's like, well, you took other people's money, you better, you better deliver. So we had a aggressive timeline and whatnot for all of that. The product itself, the MVP, is built with Flask and Python on the back end. And on the front end, it's just uh, Bootstrap and jQuery. So you don't see any like React or Vue or any of that kind of uh, fancy front end stuff that's uh, come out in the last five years. We are doing that now, uh, 18 months later. So. Building any MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs, you know, uh, feature cut or acceptance of technical debt. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them. There was a lot of things we had to sort of cut out of the MVP, like all the nice to haves. But the, the biggest thing for me is always like how much, how much human work is there left to do that's unautomated when you, you know, push out that MVP because, you know, you have to ultimately still facilitate that work. You still have to get it done. We put together a training platform. We put together an assessment, which is a, to say a test, right? And, and there was a lot of work that went into that. That's really cool. But at the end of the day, we had no way to grade it when it was done. So we ended up launching and having users come through. And then we're like, how are we going to grade these people? So, you know, we had, we had an idea of what we wanted to grade them on, but the technology was missing to actually get their answers out of the database in a way that is, you know, sort of simple on a web page. I wrote some queries to pull stuff out. Did they get this right? Did they get this wrong for the quiz part? And then for the rest of it, review it with a scoring rubric. And what it says to the user, right? It's like, what's the user experience? Is that they were like, oh, we'll email you in five days your results. And so people were fine with that. And what's what's hilarious about that is while now we do have a lot more automation on the back end with regards to grading, we still, to this day, 18 months later, have the notice that says, oh, we'll, we'll get back to you in five days. Which isn't true, which isn't true. You know, we over, we undersell and over deliver there, but we're getting ready to change it. Corey and I find it amusing because we're like, God, that that's just sitting there telling them they're gonna be waiting five days when really we get back to them right away, but yeah. Well then, tell me about how you progress the product, so how you matured it, and you know I'm interested in you know from that point, you know how you built your roadmap, how you decided what was the next most important thing to build. What happened for us was you know when we did the initial sort of roadmap for the MVP, we did it in a spreadsheet, probably not uncommon, and we said like you know here's the absolutely required, and here's the must uh, nice to haves, and like I said, we cut all the nice to haves. So you would kind of expect that what we would have done is gone after those nice to haves. The truth is we didn't in any way, shape or form. So the nice to haves, we still haven't done. That implies that the net new stuff that we had to do came organically. That again is because of the pandemic. So what happened was we launched in October for the first few months, we had a number of people go through it and graduate. We tried to place those individuals for jobs and whatnot. 
And then in February, March, things started to unravel because the pandemic hit and it was like, okay, how do we get people jobs now? Like no one is hiring, right? Jobs sort of fell out of the market. So what we did from there was really interesting. We created a, a premium offering for candidates, for students, so that they could have sort of continuous ongoing education, access to a community, uh, and, and sort of like an on-demand video library and these uh, live courses. Uh, we introduced all those different things. So that was one thing we did uh, for 29 bucks a month. But we're really a, a B2B focused company, even though we have B2C revenue as well. So on the B2B side, we, you know, we kept hearing from our customers or potential customers that they wanted to use our training internally. So they really liked the training that we offered and they were like, hey, can we use this internally as like our LMS or whatever? And we were like, mm, maybe. You know, when we got to the pandemic, we were like, okay, we're a business, we still need to make money, we still wanna help people, but these companies literally wanna pay us for a training uh, platform and for something called our vetting platform, which is a interview screening platform, but it's very similar to like the assessment that I was talking about earlier, just externally focused for companies that wanna use it. Yeah, we turned around and started selling that as a B2B SaaS product for a start entry point at like $299. And that went very well. And then third thing that we've done, sort of added on, is uh, the hiring side of the business, right? Um, the original vision for Aspireship has a lot to do with how do we use, you know, modern artificial intelligence techniques to do not only hiring, but matching and education. All of that's starting to come together, but we just kind of started on that in November. So we're just now kind of, like I say, catching up to the original vision. And then, of course, on all that stuff, you have a ton of back-end sort of admin automation that has to go into it to manage all three experiences. Well, let's switch to team. How did you go about building your team? And, and what I'm looking for is, you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? At Aspireship, we're one of those companies where we require that you care about our mission. And that is to say that you care about helping others is probably the shortest way I can put it. But as I mentioned with that mission statement earlier, uh, to help enable, transform driven individuals for their future with learning and opportunity. You know, you have to believe in that mission, but you have to be able to like repeat it back to us in a way that speaks to your soul and like who you are and your character. So we look for, you know, the energy around that and the character around that and sort of like what they bring in terms of their perspective on, on that mission. That's the first thing. And then the, the second major thing is just that, you know, you, you have that we before me attitude. With the engineering hires specifically, I like to scare the crap out of them. I call it the hug and scare. What I do with those people is I go, hey, you know, this is like a great place to come and work and whatever, but um, you know, what would, what would you say if I told you like, this is what it looked like on the inside? You know, and, I, and I'm really sort of vague about it. So I don't, I don't try to like, I, I wanna make sure they're comfortable not trying to offend me. Like, I don't want them to think they're gonna offend me if they say something bad. So I'll give you an example, like uh, Cooney, which is my one of my engineers that I hired. I said, rank these things in order of importance for engineering. And he put testing at the top and I'm like, Hey, so like, you know, what would you say if I said, you know, that we don't have any tests? Like, how would you feel about that? I was like, I'm really happy you put that at the top, but what would you, what would you say about that? And he's like, well, I would say that, um, that's why you're hiring me. So I can fix all of that for you. That's a great answer. <laughs> so you can see why he got the job. It's a humility test. There's a bunch of humility tests in the way we interview. Like we say to them, hey, please do a project for us. We don't like pay you to do any of that, but it's like, hey, get through this thing. And that requires somebody to be sort of like humble enough to be like, well, I want to be a part of this thing so bad, right? Number one qualifier that number two, I'm willing to do the project. And then, you know, like I said, number three is all the 
sort of character and energy qualification stuff that we do. Well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or have you been kind of fighting this as you grow and get traction? Yeah, I mean, less of the fighting. I wish that was the case. I've worked in environments where we were firefighting every day to keep things up and running. But luckily, with, you know, sort of cloud scale platforms like Heroku, uh, which is what we use on our back end, I meant to mention this earlier, you know, it, it comes with auto scaling out of the box. So, you know, I put an app up there and it, it doesn't have a memory leak. But if it did, you know, auto scaling would sort of like save the day. But yeah, we've had cases where our app has been hit with, you know, spikes of traffic where it's like, holy crap, are we going to be able to like scale and meet this? And the only real problem we ever had was on our database. And it really had to do with not, you know, right sizing that instance. But the real problem was we didn't have at the time instrumentation on the database. So we didn't have like that sort of observability or monitoring on that database that showed like, hey, there's a contention problem on this row in this database or whatever. And there's a design problem with your tables, Jason, since you set it up. And so sometimes things would happen and I look at it and I go, oh, uh, what is this? Like, why is this slow? Like, why is a query taking a whole second or two to complete? That's kind of a long time. You know, is this too many joins or whatever? And so that was more or less um, some of the performance things that tied into our inability to scale, but it never was to the point where it caused any real grief for customers. It was more like, oh, they waited a couple seconds, right? Oh, at one point we did have some timeouts, but that was again, sort of related to just uh, database queries, just tying things up. So once we got that cleaned up, it wasn't really on the, the infrastructure side that there was a scale problem, nor nor much on the code side, really just in the database, um, sort of between the ORM, the object relational mapper and the database. So there's two aspects of scalability, right? There's the infrastructure, the technology, how you build it, but then it's also the, the people. How have you approached that side of the equation? So for our business, right, we're really focused around hiring. That's like our primary focus, even though we offer like a free educational program and then try to get you placed. Our revenue is largely based on placing people at companies. So it's in our best interest to get them hired. A lot of our team, when we built it, is focused around the hiring side of the business, right? So our largest sort of group of people is called Candidate Experience, and they're responsible for getting students engaged, getting them through the, the program and grading them at the end, and then getting them placed for a job. There's three of those people. We're not a very large team. We're still only about 10 people, but it started with Corey and I, and then Christine coming on board, which is our president and COO, and then Peter, who's our head of product. And then after that, it was it's been all sort of like sales, marketing, and this candidate experience thing, which is sort of a hybrid role. So that's, that's why I have a difficult time saying, hey, we hired sales or marketing. It's like, no, no, we hired this thing called candidate experience and it's sort of unique to what we do. You could look at them as somewhat of recruiters, but like, again, they do they do a lot more than, than that. Um, so I don't want to minimize it in any way. That group's really the core of our uh, engine for, for getting work done. And so there's, like I said, three people in there. We have a, a marketing guru, a product guru, a couple of people focused on sales. Um, and I'm sure I'm leaving some folks out, but oh, and of course, engineering and <laughs> my own my own space, you know. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? There are two things. Number one is the culture of our company. We have a really fantastic uh, culture and, and building a company and building a culture is something that was a massive goal for me with Aspireship. So it wasn't just about, hey, let me go build a technology platform. It had a lot to do with, let me build a place that people love coming to work at. 
because I think that's really special. And as I, as I tell people all the time, it's like, I want to help people both internally and externally as it relates to aspireship. So I want to help the people that work there and I want to help the people that uh, work with us or work uh, or that we find work for. So just touching people's lives in as many ways, that's, you know, so I'm proud of us, I'm proud of our mission, but on the technology side, the thing I'm most proud of is architectural principles. When I set out to like build it, uh, I made sure to uh, preserve sort of this idea of multi-tenancy as it relates to employers uh, coming on board on our platform, which in essence is saying like, hey, we built a real platform. We didn't just build like this uh, monolith for like, that like tries to work with all these different companies and serve them the same thing. We have a very sort of like highly customizable and flexible way to integrate with our system. So like I mentioned earlier, this became sort of clutch with regards to the pandemic because like anything we have built for ourselves, we can turn around and give to you sort of on an RBAC basis, right? So I can decide like whether or not you have it. And that's all just because of the multi-tenancy aspect that's in the, the principles of the architectural design. It's like, make sure you build this one to many or, or sorry, many to many or, or whatever. Like make sure that everyone can use and interchange these things. And so I'm most proud of that flexibility because from my architectural experience, there are, there are things that are very hard to fix later and multi-tenancy is one of them. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So one time I was up in Prescott hanging out with my dad, so I wasn't paying great attention. And uh, I was on my laptop and this was early days, I don't know, like a year, year and a half ago or something. And I was asked to update a user and I, uh, I forgot the where clause. What happens when you forget a where clause when you update a user live is that you update all your users, right? So. I updated all my users uh, at that time, and it was, it was thousands already by that time. And it was like I expired them all immediately. So I would, the thing I was trying to change was an expiration date because we have like trial periods and stuff. Yeah, I uh, updated like 4,000 users, and I was like, oh crap. And so I, you know, I immediately told my team. I immediately took down the site because I wanted to make sure no more writes got through to the database, so that the state was sort of preserved from that change. And then I started working on the rollback, which took about 15, 20 minutes for me to learn how to do a database rollback using Heroku. By the way, it's pretty awesome, but that's the whole adage about like testing your backup. So, you know, you always end up testing it live, but luckily for me at work, I was able to roll back to a really good state. Uh, we didn't really lose any data that we know of. My team was graceful. They were so graceful. And in fact, they kind of laughed about it, which for me and for any engineer who's ever been in the hot seat when they make a mistake, you know, the pit of your stomach is like twisting. It's like someone stabbing you with a knife and you just want to throw up. You know, I, I worked at PayPal for a long time and, and Symantec and these places where availability is so critical. When you make a mistake, you know, you just want to crawl in a corner and die. My team was just like, haha, it's all good. Just let us know when it's back up. And I was like, this is so different. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? You know, it's interesting because we're, we're still expanding. We're still hiring, like we're hiring an additional marketing person right now. But the, the kind of hiring we're doing is, I guess, really strategic is what I would say. And it's, it's sort of still minimal. We're, you know, looking at a second fundraise later this year. And after that, we may look, you know, to significantly hire more people. But up until this point, it's been all about, you know, validating the business model, solving the business model, making sure everything uh, functions properly. That's all been validated. So at this point, it's really about how do we go faster and how do we tune and how do we automate so that we can go faster. 
And so it is really the the year of technology in our business is one of the things we've been talking about is it's like we've focused on making this business a real business despite technology. We've done that intentionally, right? Make sure that your business is a business even without technology. If technology was gone tomorrow, can you still collect revenue? That's very important. And, and we've done all that. And now we're looking at it and going, okay, now to sort of achieve the true vision, there's a whole lot of technological investment that needs to go on to improve the e-learning experience, to improve the hiring experience, and to improve uh, our train, you know, just our internal training for employers experience as well, because they use it to level up, they use it to vet. So there's a bunch sort of embedded in that. One of the things is, you know, revamping the MVP, of course, as you would imagine, um, we're totally going to change our UX design because out the gate we like used, you know, like a bootstrap template and now we have a head of product and it's like, okay, let's rip the bandaid off. Let's make this thing look, look as snappy as our team is, right? Because our team's really high caliber and we really just want to get our product to that level with regards to the MVP and then just expanding it. As I was saying earlier, there's just a, a bunch of back office stuff that's happening uh, on the hiring side that we need to get automated. And there's a lot of advanced technology like the artificial intelligence that we want to take a look at and see how we can implement that to improve, again, our training and our hiring experiences. So that's really going to be the focus this year. I don't think I look further out than that. Just the nature of, of, of how short the life of the startup currently is, just it's taught me that looking three to six months out, a year out is about as far out as I want to look. It just changes way too rapidly to care uh, beyond that point. Even though there is a North Star, which is like just changing people's lives and getting as many people hired as, as possible and helping them improve their situation. Let's switch to you, Jason. So who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. There's a guy by the name of Kelsey Hightower, who's a staff developer advocate, or I guess he's a principal developer advocate at uh, Google. He's really responsible. He's like known as the major evangelist for Kubernetes. I met him briefly a couple of years ago at PayPal while I was there, but even prior to that, I knew who he was and I had this huge amount of respect for who he was and I, and I still do. So I, I really look up to him because he's somebody in technology who, while he is wicked smart and super technical and you, you can admire him for all those reasons, I admire him for his humanness. He's one of the most kind and most caring individuals that you will see as a public figure. And that's really resonates with who I am. You know, I, I, I care so much about people, even sometimes more so than, than I should. It's like a Achilles heel for me gets me into trouble because <laughs> uh, like I can't stand to see somebody getting bullied. I'll go over there and punch the bully and that gets me in trouble from time to time. But the way he carries himself, I just I just really have a high admiration and respect for. So I, I pretty much am only on Twitter to track the people that I respect and he's number one. So we talked about mistakes, but a little bit of a different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or you know, where would you consider taking a different approach? So the only thing that I think I would do differently is a corner we cut, I wouldn't cut, and that's payments. When we launched our MVP, you know, this was just to get like candidates in the door. But again, most of our revenue comes from businesses and we weren't yet trying to sign a hiring partner who agrees to like hire through us or whatever. But a few months later, we were trying to do that. And I told Corey, I was like, hey, you know, when we're going to need payments, let me know because that's a heavy lift. 
I come from a payments background, so I could speak to this a little bit. Like it's a heavy lift, and uh, we didn't we didn't do that. And so what ended up happening was we got this customer, our first customer, and I think it was like December, January, and they were like ready to pay us our first check, you know, our first big check, and we had no way to accept the payment. And so I was like, crap. So I did like a. Uh, this is actually one of Corey's favorite stories about me. It's like. He's like, dude, you sprinted for like 48 hours. So like I, like for like 48 hours, I didn't sleep. I, I delivered the feature at like 4 a.m. day of. The guy was paying at like 8 a.m. that morning. And so I delivered it and I, had, I did not have a great way to test it. So we actually did charge ourselves the full amount. I'm not even going to say what the amount was, but it was like a big thing where we charged ourselves and refunded it. And the refund cost us, you know, a percentage of the transactions. But we did that just to make sure it was going to work, and it did work. And uh, yeah, if I had a, a chance to go back, I would do that right the first time because unfortunately in that 48-hour sprint, I had no choice but to implement it sort of in a, a crappy way. Um, and it, and we're still running on that that crappy implementation. And so every once in a while, we'll get a customer and we'll want to do something, and this constraint with the way we implemented our payments will pop up, and it's like, why didn't you go back and fix that? So that that I would have done right the first time uh, if I had the choice. It's such a key part of your business and par- particularly your, your customer's experience. Well, last question, Jason. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? You know, if this person is an entrepreneur who's already built the next big thing, to me it implies they're both a, a builder and a visionary. And so if you if you look into, you know, sort of the key positions you need in a startup, you got your builder, your visionary, and your hustler. And so I'd probably talk to them about who they've got pinned out or who they're going to go and get or how they're going to hire their hustler, number one. And that's usually the person doing like the sales and marketing for the organization. But over time, they become basically the heartbeat of the organization, you know, keeping everybody on track. And they're, they're the hustler, by definition, is the person just pushing. I talked to him specifically about who that key person is. And then on top of that, I would I would just get a sense for this entrepreneur's ego. I would, I would try to search for the understanding around what technology means to the business. So even in a business like Instagram or um, something with a patented technology, let's say, where technology is absolutely critical, I have this, this saying, and again, I know Kelsey goes around saying this as well, that you know, technology is really about people. Conway's law, if you've ever heard of it, where your architecture reflects your organizational structure. But the long and short of it is there's no getting away from the humanness that's involved in technology and business. And I really hate when technologists specifically underweight the importance of business or people in that chemistry. And I always try to give people the advice of, it's not about the latest and greatest technology. It's not about all those different bells and whistles and shiny objects. It's about how are you using this technology to enable a business to be better or how are you using this technology to enable human beings to be better and never lose sight that, you know, it's about people and not technology. That's fantastic advice. Well, Jason, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Aspireship. Noah, thank you so much. I I had a wonderful time. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.